Isn't Jesus just a good teacher? Is there an all-powerful God? Why are there so many denominations? What's wrong with the church? Does absolute truth exist? What makes the Bible different from other books? Why is Christianity so narrow-minded? Isn't it the same God with different names? Do all roads lead to heaven? What if we just rethink this? Hey, Dream City. I want to just say hello to all of our campuses today. So glad you're with us. We're in this series that we have called Rethink. And today, we're talking about rethinking religion. And so just to get the conversation started, I'd like to begin by asking you to turn to the person next to you and tell them who you think is the single greatest basketball player that ever lived. Just take 20 seconds right now and do that. All right, now most of you probably said Michael Jordan. We all know when Michael Jordan retired, sports writers described his career using the following kinds of phrases. He was one of a kind. We'll never see another quite like him. He was in a class all by himself. Now here's the second question. Which spiritual leader had the greatest impact on our world from the very beginning of time until right now? Of whom will it be said he was one of a kind? He was in a class all by himself. And of course, this is church, so your answer is Jesus Christ. You know, rather than me just lobbing to you a softball question and you knocking it out of the park, I'd like you to do, what I want to do is walk you through a process that will allow you to think through this question carefully and objectively. And then you can decide if there really is any evidence that would cause you to believe that Jesus Christ really is in a class all by himself. So I want to start by identifying which spiritual leaders deserve to be in the top four list. And I have my daughter Aubrey here to help us with this. So she's going to help me kind of turn some signs around. By any objective standard, this list would include, number one, Confucius. And then number two, it would be Buddha or the Buddha. Number three, it would be Muhammad. And of course, number four would be Jesus Christ. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, hey, where does Hinduism fit into all this? Well, there is no central leadership personality associated with Hinduism. In fact, there isn't even a single God represented in Hinduism. There's an assortment of millions of gods. So we're going to focus on these four uh, historical spiritual leaders. First of all, Confucius. He was born in 551 B.C., 500 years before Christ. At one time, his teachings influenced 300 million people. Wow. Roughly the population of the United States. So he's a player. He must be taken seriously. Now, Buddha was born about the same time as Confucius in 563 B.C. His actual name was Siddhartha Gautama. But he called himself, or he was called rather, the Enlightened One, or the Buddha. His influence is mostly felt in northern India, China, Indonesia, Japan, and Korea. And still today, 
There are roughly 535 million people who call themselves Buddhist. So he is definitely a contender. He's a player. Then there's Muhammad. Muhammad was born about 1,000 years later, 570 AD. And he's a man through whom Islam took shape. Currently today, there are 1.8 billion people who are members of Islam. Then there's Jesus Christ. When was Jesus Christ born? How about zero? (laughs) Most of the world sets its calendar by the birth of Jesus Christ today. Today, his influence is felt worldwide. Approximately 2.5 billion people consider themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. So, there you have it. Those are the four top religious leaders of all time. All of them are bona fide historical figures. You can Google and read about them. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start them off on an even playing field and then take you through a series of questions and answers. And we're going to see if one of these men breaks out of the pack and distinguishes himself as a a one-of-a-kind leader, one who's in a class all by himself. So here's the first question. Who among these four teachers distinguished himself by his teaching? Well, let's start with Confucius. Confucius was called by his followers the sagest of the sage, or the wisest of the wise. You may have heard the phrase, Confucius says, and then they would give a, you know, a little proverb. And he authored some of those wise sayings, but he mostly collected pearls of wisdom from other people and formed a small book of these called the Analects, which are still being memorized by Chinese school kids today. It's important to note that Confucius never considered himself an originator of wisdom. He saw himself more of an editor of wisdom literature. Furthermore, Confucius' teachings did not attempt to connect human beings with God. His writings offered kind of a self-help wisdom that helped people get along with each other better and live a happier life. It's also important to note that Confucius' influence has been decreasing in recent decades falling from his peak of 300 million followers down to around 6 million followers today. But still, his writings are widely appreciated today, and I'll bet that most of you have heard his name. So we'll say he had some impact as a teacher, and we're going to give him one quarter of a block. And you're going to see how these blocks are measured out as we go along. Confucius gets a a quarter of a block. Then there's Buddha. Now, Buddha was not an entirely uh, original creator of Buddhism. He took many ideas from Hinduism, such as reincarnation and karma and meditation as a means of maturing the soul. Buddha's most famous teaching is known as the Four Noble Truths, and they go this way. Truth number one, life is suffering. Truth number two, all suffering comes from human desire. Truth number three, All suffering can be overcome by eliminating human desire. And truth number four, eliminating desire is achieved by following the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. Now, I don't have time to get into all the nuances of of Buddhism, but if you want to know the heart of Buddhism, here it is. It's the elimination of human desire. If you're going to take the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment and work at it really hard, you'll get to a point where all human desire is eliminated. And when all your desires are eliminated, you arrive in a state of mind 
known as nirvana. And when you have no more desire, and if you have no more human desire, then you're not going to experience any loss or pain or disappointment. Buddha's writings are collected in this huge 12,800 page volume. And Buddha's teachings are, and his writings are still influencing over 500 million followers today, far more than Confucius. So we have to give him a little larger block. We're going to give him one half of a block. And again, you'll see how these blocks measure up as we go along. Now, Muhammad's teachings can be summed up in five statements. Allah, number one, is the one true God. Number two, Allah has many prophets, including Moses and Jesus, but Muhammad is the last and the greatest prophet of all. Number three, the Quran is the supreme religious book in the world. Number four, there are many intermediate beings between God and us, some good and some are evil. And number five, here's the heart of Islam. Every person's deeds will be weighed someday to determine who did enough good deeds to warrant going to paradise. And those who didn't do enough will be separated from Allah in a place of torment forever. Now friends, look, it's important to note that in each of these first three belief systems, it's a works based approach. There's no grace involved at all. It's doing enough good deeds. It's following enough rules, achieving enough merit marks to make you acceptable before God. Islam's holy book is called the Quran. It has a huge circulation and it's widely translated. You should also know that Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world. There are more Muslims in the UK than evangelical Christians. There are more Muslims in the U.S. than Episcopalians or Jews, and it's growing rapidly. So, in fairness, we have to give a sizable block. We're going to give a three-quarters block to the teachings of Muhammad because his influence has been substantial, and it's increasing in our day. Okay? So then there's Jesus Christ. And look, I have tried my best to be objective about this. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus has been widely recognized inside and outside the Christian faith as being the single greatest teacher that has ever lived. Entire judicial systems of civilizations have been built on the teachings that came from the lips of Jesus. Even most atheists and agnostics marvel at the sweeping brilliance of Jesus' teaching. And with regard to circulation, the Bible is unmatched. 60 to 7 million Bibles are published every year. And the Bible is by far the most widely translated and distributed book in all of history. So, without question, the impact of Jesus' teaching clearly exceeds that of the rest of the field. Any objective study would come to that conclusion. So in fairness, we have to give Jesus the full block on this one because he's impacted more people through his teaching. Okay, now let's kick this whole thing up a notch, all right? Let's spice in the whole pot a little bit. Second question, who among these four spiritual leaders distinguishes himself by his moral life? Because we'd expect leaders of this caliber to live morally excellent lives, right? Well, Confucius strongly encouraged virtuous living, and he deplored the moral laxity of his day. But he never claimed to be morally perfect. And his followers never attributed that description to him. 
Now, there's no record of him being a bad guy, but there's certainly no record of him being a great moral example either. He's just somewhere in the middle of the road. And so we're going to give him one quarter of a block. One quarter of a full block because he, he did talk about morality. Well, then there was next was Buddha. Now, Buddha was a strong proponent of moral living. The virtues of kindness and truthfulness and humility were a huge part of his teaching. Some of his followers also called him the perfect one, not so much because of his morality, but because of how rigorously he attempted to live out that eightfold path of enlightenment and eliminate desire in his life. And so we're going to give Buddha a one-half block because he talked a lot more about virtuous living than Confucius did. Okay, next is Muhammad. Now, Muhammad's story is a bit darker. Not only was Muhammad responsible for killing several of the soldiers in various skirmishes, but in direct violation of the Quran, Islam's holy book, he exceeded the number of wives he was allowed to take. The limit at that time was four wives. But conveniently, some might say, Muhammad received a revelation one night and was given special permission by Allah to add many more wives to his harem. And no one else received that special permission except for him, and he took full advantage of it. Furthermore, Muhammad often acknowledged his own sinfulness, and he asked Allah for forgiveness time and time again. And many of Muhammad's close followers wrote about how he had this dark side, a very dark side. And so in fairness, Muhammad would have to receive a fairly thin block. We're going to give him one-eighth of a block in comparison to the others because his moral life is really a bit sketchy. Well, then there's Jesus Christ. Friends, we got a situation on our hands here because Jesus actually claimed, not in a prideful way, in a humble way, to lead a morally perfect life. Now, the minute someone makes that kind of claim, you got to check it out, right? And the first group you check it out with is the people who knew him well, like his friends and family. And when you do the research on what all his friends and family said about him and his moral life, they gave witness to the fact that he led an absolutely morally perfect life. Now, a skeptic may say, well, they were biased, right? Like if I call myself a nice guy and I brought my daughters and wife and close friends up here, they're going to give me the benefit of the doubt, right? Luke's a nice guy. So what you have to do when someone claims moral perfection is check with their enemies because they have no reason to protect a person. They're just going to say it the way it is, maybe even lean toward the darker side. But when you do the research on Jesus, you find out that not only did Jesus claim to be morally perfect, not only did his friends and family say they'd never seen him violate even a single moral law, One day, Jesus stood before his worst detractors, his enemies. This is recorded in John chapter 8. And Jesus says, come on, guys, take a free shot at me. Can any of you prove me guilty of any sin at all? And the Bible says his enemies could only shuffle their feet and look at their sandal tops. No one could speak a single of a single fault in the life of Jesus. There is not a shred of evidence of a single moral lapse in the life of Jesus Christ. If there were something, it certainly would have showed up in the historical record. There wasn't, so there's not. 
For an example, when Jesus stood trial before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and he was being uh, interrogated for an extended period of time, Pilate finally said in Luke 23, 4, I can find no fault in this man. And not only was he faultless, on the positive side, he was the most virtuous person who ever lived. He set the standard when it came to love. Nobody ever loved like Jesus loved. He demonstrated remarkable amounts of compassion and humility, perfect anger management. And when it came to forgiveness and grace, man, when he was unfairly arrested and sentenced to death, he's lying on the ground while Roman executioners take these huge spikes and they pound them into his hands. What did he say? Did he make a fist and say, I'll rise again and you'll all pay for this? No. He receives the nails and he prays, Father, forgive these guys. They don't have a clue what they're doing. And when people witness that kind of grace and forgiveness, oh man, it took their breath away. It just knocked the wind out of them. See, no one had ever seen anything quite like Jesus. He was the only morally perfect human being that ever walked on planet Earth. And friends, this is huge. This is what truly sets Jesus apart from the rest of the pack. I mean, Michael Jordan was set apart because he averaged a few more points a game or a few more rebounds or assists a game. But moral perfection, moral perfection, that puts you in an entirely different class. And so in fairness, we've got to give Jesus the full block on this one because he was morally perfect. Now we come to the third question. Who among these four spiritual leaders distinguishes himself by his miracle power? How many of these four men do you think possess the kind of supernatural power to defy natural laws and do miracles? How many miracles did Confucius do? How about none? He never claimed to have miracle power. What about Buddha? Buddha didn't do any miracles. He never claimed to have that kind of power. Same deal with Muhammad. In fact, the Quran Quran clearly speaks and says, Muhammad performed no miracles. And he never claimed to have that power. So no blocks for any of them by their own admission. And now we have Jesus. Only Jesus demonstrated supernatural power throughout his three-year ministry from healing physical afflictions to calming storms to raising dead people back to life. And his miracles were witnessed by thousands of eyewitnesses. No sleight of hand stuff going on in a dark corner. And his miracles were recorded by the writers of the Gospels and they were also widely recorded by secular historians as well. In fact, one of the reasons why Jesus exploded onto the scene was because of his wonder-working power. Scripture says sometimes he'd be teaching and a whole village would bring their disease and infirm people out to him and he'd heal every single one of them. That was Jesus. Now, friends, this isn't just a small, subtle difference between Jesus and the others. (laughs) The ability to perform miracles separates the men from the boys spiritually. Jesus had supernatural power. The others did not. And even the way Jesus did miracles puts him in a class all on his own. He never threw his miracle power around carelessly. 
or used it for selfish gain. He performed miracles for average, everyday people who are suffering and dying. And he never once hyped it or put it on a tel- put on a television production or made a, a spectacle of these people to raise ratings or money. That wasn't his style. Jesus' style would be to walk right into a hospital and heal every afflicted person lying in those beds and then quietly walk out the back door and look for the next hurting person to heal. He wouldn't need to give any interviews to the press. He wouldn't need to post any videos on social media. His style was simply the humble use of supernatural power to relieve suffering and pain. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, remember Peter? He got all amped up and took out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the arresting soldier and Jesus says, stop, Peter, stop. And he picks up the guy's ear and he heals the ear of the soldier who was coming to arrest him and take him away to be crucified. See, that's the way Jesus used his power. I'm telling you, friends, miracle power puts a person in a class all of his own. And we have to give Jesus Christ the full block on this one too because he alone possessed supernatural power, wonder-working power. Here's a fourth question. Who among these four spiritual leaders distinguished himself by his prophetic power? Now, I studied Confucius and Buddha's life to see if they had any prophetic power at all. And there's no mention that they had any ability to see people, to see into people's lives or into future events. So these first two get no blocks on this one at all. They didn't profess to have the power to prophesy. Muhammad is different. He made a few general predictions about what his troops would do in battles and the successes they would have, but nothing all that noteworthy. So we'll give him one-eighth of a block, a very thin block on this one. Once again, then there's Jesus. And again, he's in the class all his own. Not only did he prophesy about future events, but he could read the thoughts and the hearts of people. One time Jesus was sharing some water with a woman at the well. And this woman mentions to him, Sir, I'm not married. And Jesus says, You're right when you say you're not married, for you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you're, you aren't even married to the man you're living with right now. And in verse 19, she says, Sir, you must be a prophet. There's no other way you could have known that information about me. Another time, Jesus was inside the temple, and people were bringing offerings in, and a little widow comes in, and she puts two little copper pennies in the bucket. And after that, the rich people come in and they start putting huge amounts of money into these offering buckets. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow gave more than all the rich people. They gave only out of what they didn't need. This woman is very poor. She gave all she had. She gave all she had to live on. See, Jesus could read the hearts of the givers. He knew who was giving sacrificially and joyfully and who wasn't. By the way, Jesus can still read the hearts of people today. As far as future events are concerned, Jesus also predicted his own death years before it happened. He predicted the form of death, the kind of burial he would have. And without flinching, he said, I'm going to rise from the grave. 
Oh, I could give you example after example as evidence of Jesus' prophetic power to see into future events and read people's hearts and minds. So once again, we got to give Jesus the full block on this one because he simply had prophetic power. Now there's one more category I want to talk to you about as we close. Here's the fifth question. Who among these four spiritual leaders distinguished himself by his power to overcome death, his power to overcome the grave? It's interesting. Over the centuries, there have been thousands of people who have called themselves prophets or messiah types. But there's one thing that always seems to call their bluff, and it's death. This is why most cults rise in popularity, but then wind up flickering out. Because when the self-proclaimed Messiah type finally dies, despite all his bold predictions about what's going to happen after his death, after they die, guess what? They just sort of stay dead. And then a few weeks later, the followers of that dead guy stand around the grave. And they say, you know, maybe he was pretty much just like us after all. Maybe we should get real jobs now and grow our hair back and, you know, get on with our lives. Death always has a way of calling the bluff of Messiah types. Death called Confucius bluff. When he died, he simply stayed dead. And no matter how influential Buddha was or how passionate he was about following that eightfold path of enlightenment, when he died, he stayed dead. The same is true of Muhammad. You can go to his graveside, as most Muslims do at least one time during their lifetime. You can stand right outside his tomb, and his body is still right there in that grave. But then there's Jesus. And on Good Friday, he's hanging there on the cross, and it looked like death was going to call his bluff too. On Saturday, they took his body down from the cross and put it in a tomb, and his followers ran away. One of them actually said, maybe we ought to go back to our old jobs and take up fishing because this thing is over. It was a good run, but it's over. Then came Sunday, the day when Jesus distinguished himself from every other spiritual leader that has ever lived. Because on Sunday, that was the day when Jesus Christ burst, burst forth from the tomb, proving once and for all that he belongs in a class all on his own. See, resurrections are a big deal. Your uniform and number should be permanently retired if you rise from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection is very well documented. Multiple studies have been done throughout history presenting the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when the research is done thoroughly and honestly, the outcome clearly points to the conclusion that Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead, making him the unquestioned greatest spiritual leader in the history of the world, deserving a full block once again. And my daughter will need some help with this last one. This right here is a good opportunity for you 
to give the greatest of all time, Jesus Christ, God's Son, a great clap offering here today. Friends, I want you to look at these stacks. Just take a look at them real quick. I don't want to say anything to denigrate Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad because there's nothing in my spirit that would want that would cause me to want to make them less than what they really are. They were men. They lived. They offered some wisdom and some teaching. They created a following and then they died. It's just that they never distinguished themselves the way Jesus did. I mean, at some point you have to look at these stacks and say the evidence shows that Jesus Christ really was in a class of his own. Jesus is exactly who he said he was, God's son, the second person of the Trinity, the savior of the world. And he did exactly what he said he came to do, which was to go to a cross and pay for the collective sins that we have all committed. Confucius couldn't have paid for anybody's sin with his death because he had his own sin. I mean, look at his morality block. You know, it's very small. He needed needed someone else to pay for his sin. The same is true of Buddha and Muhammad. They all failed the morality test. So they are needed someone else to pay for their sins, but not Jesus, not Jesus. When he led a morally perfect life, he qualified himself to be able to take upon his shoulders the sins of all of us. When he finally died, he said those words, it is finished. I have finally paid the ultimate price to take upon myself the sins of the world. Here's the best news of all today. That utterly unique individual in all of human history has something he wants to say to you today. What he wants to say to you is simply this. I love you. I have this enormous, irrational, ongoing love affair for you. You're the reason I came to this earth. You're the reason I I taught while I was here to show you how to navigate your life in a very constructive way. You're the reason I lived a perfectly moral life so I could pay the price for your sins on a cross. But my moral perfection was also to be an example to you, to show you how you can live at a higher level of life than you ever lived before in the past. You're the reason why I did miracles. If you would just invite me into your life, I'd share some of that miracle power with you. I'd love to answer some of your prayers and give you a strength that you don't have in and of yourself. And you're the reason why I died and rose again. Because all I was doing was paving the way of what's going to happen to you if you become a follower of mine. Because you're going to resurrect someday in the presence of God where you will live in my Father's presence forever. Friends, let's admit it. Jesus is in a class all by himself. Do you see that today? Can you see it? Well, it's not enough to see it. At some point in your life, you got to be seized by it. You got to be gripped by it. And you got to open your heart and ask for Jesus Christ to be the supreme leader of your life. The truth is, you're going to stand before God one day. And on that day, you will either stand before God as a follower or a fender 
either a follower of his son, Jesus Christ, or someone who fended him off during the course of your life. And I would hope and pray that all of you today will make a decision so that one day when you stand before him, you can say, I am a follower of Jesus. Someone who will say, I knew I wasn't morally perfect and I needed someone who could take the weight of my sin on his shoulders. I was someone who knew they needed wisdom, so I followed the teachings of the Bible. I was someone who needed your supernatural power in my life and you gave it to me. I was someone who wanted to be resurrected someday. And I opened my eyes in eternity in heaven. Here I am with you. Today you have that opportunity to become a follower of the most unique individual in all of history, God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And my prayer is that you would invite Him to be your leader today. Heavenly Father, I pray all across this place that hearts will be turned to you in this moment. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for watching this message today. I believe that right now as you're watching this video, God is speaking to your heart. God is speaking to you about a new life, a new future, a new hope. The Bible says that the way we connect with God is we actually call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says, he who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's almost like taking your cell phone out and making a call to somebody that you really love. You're making the call. And I want to encourage you to make the call to God today. And as you do, he promises to forgive your sins, to adopt you into his family, and to give you a hope and a future. So today, if you are ready to call upon the name of the Lord, would you just close your eyes right now? And just sincerely say these words to God. Dear Heavenly Father, just say those words. I ask you today to be the leader of my life. I ask you to forgive me for my sins and adopt me into your family. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. So I give you my heart today. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says if you prayed that prayer, he heard you and he forgave you. So I want to say to you, welcome to the family of God. Go find a great church to be involved in. If you don't have one, come join us here at Dream City and we'll help you live out the Christian faith and grow closer to Jesus. God bless you all.